The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. This episode of the History of Literature is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash H-O-L. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. That's www.audibletrial.com slash H-O-L. to Duke Ellington, whose legendary home at the Cotton Club was one of the signatures of today's subject, the Harlem Renaissance. We'll be focused on the poets and novelists and writers, but the Harlem Renaissance was broader than that. It was music and dance and paintings and photography. They all saw a great flowering during this period. And it was broader than just Harlem, too. It spanned across other cities and not just Detroit and Chicago and Philadelphia and the other northern cities, which benefited from the great migration of African Americans coming up from the south. It included European capitals, too, most notably Paris. The Harlem Renaissance, as we'll see, was in many ways a state of mind, a consciousness, the evolution of an identity. The Harlem Renaissance was a movement in the most kinetic sense of the word, a liberated movement, liberating movement, an unfolding spirit. An energy. I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the show. Find more at facebook.com slash historyofliterature and historyofliterature.com. Contact me at jackwilsonauthor at gmail.com. That's J-A-C-K-E, wilsonauthor at gmail.com. I love getting your emails. Please keep them coming. I got a wonderful email from a listener who enjoyed one of my books, The Race, which is a short little novel about a political scandal. She found it strangely prescient for our current climate. Listeners... I take no pleasure in this at all. I, I don't take much credit as a predictor either. I, I genuinely did not have a Trumpian-type figure in mind when writing the book. On the other hand, maybe I was tapped into some current conditions, some general trends, a, a kind of attitude that has infested America. And that attitude ended up producing what we have now. So, two cheers to Jack Wilson, I suppose. In any case, writers need readers, and so I'm very grateful to the listener for seeking out and reading my book and for telling me how much she enjoyed it. It was a nice email to receive. And it's thanks to email that I got the idea for this show, too. The Harlem Renaissance. What a fantastic idea. Some of my favorite authors, like Nella Larson and Zora Neale Hurston, and of course, Langston Hughes. And a few that you might not have heard as much about, but you know... Let me save the story of the emails and how they led to this show. I'll talk about those later. Just remember, we owe this one to the listeners. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. 
The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, let's get started. The Harlem Renaissance. I'm a young woman and ain't gone running Bessie Smith and her song Young Woman's Blues of 1926. Another great aspect of the movement, not everything was upbeat and high energy. The Charleston became famous in this era, and Josephine Baker and the Jazz Age and all the high times of the 1920s. But there was melancholy too. What do we do when we look at movements? How do we approach them? Not just the Harlem Renaissance, but let's say the Beat Generation or the Lost Generation or the Romantic Period. We can look at the key figures and see what they had in common. We can look at their differences. We can fit them into the bigger picture, the politics of the day or the economics or all the forces and conditions that led to their rise or that tailored their individual viewpoints and creative aims. We can do this with the Elizabethans or the metaphysical poets or the pre-Raphaelites. I'm jumping around, but I want to set the stage here. The Harlem Renaissance is going to be tricky to define. Some people within it resisted the definition. We can attribute the rise to social forces and conditions, and they are stark in this case. But there are also individuals. We can't forget that, and they might have their own relationship with the social forces and conditions. Sometimes they fit right in, and sometimes they themselves resisted. There's no single explanation for an artist. There never is. When we're talking about movements, it's easy for the individual to get swallowed up. But keeping that in mind, that individuals respond in different ways, let's take a look at what was happening in the world, because it was dramatic and plays an important part in understanding the Harlem Renaissance. Even the time frame is not quite fixable. Roughly, it, it begins sometime around the end of World War I and runs through the stock market crash, at least. But others will start it earlier than World War I or will argue that its inception was really in the early 1920s later than the end of the war. Langston Hughes pointed to the 1921 musical Shuffle Along, which had an all-black cast, including Josephine Baker, as the start. Others point to Claude McKay's sonnet If We Must Die, which came out in 1919, or the 1921 release of an anthology of black poets edited by James Weldon Johnson, or the 1922 publication of Cain by Gene Toomer. Most people extend it later than the stock market crash, into the 1930s at least. 
We do agree on the most important writers, Gene Toomer, Langston Hughes, Nella Larson, County Cullen, Claude McKay. We point to artists like the painter Archibald Motley and the photographer James Vanderzee, whose famous photos included iconic images like one of an African-American couple wearing raccoon coats standing in front of a Cadillac on 127th Street. Musicians of the time included Duke Ellington and Bessie Smith and Adelaide Hall and Josephine Baker. What united these people? What did they share? Here's a question to get us started. How do we define generations? There's the span of a human life, 60 or 80 years. That's important, right? People who are alive at the time of the Harlem Renaissance had been born into slavery. The memory of it, it was very real. It's not just a memory, it was a reality. My own grandparents had lived their childhood in the Depression. Their young adult years were occupied by World War II. That affected how my parents grew up and how I grew up. It's very tangible. You could trace back my roots to some of those influences. And for America in 1920, slavery was only 55 or 60 years away. The authors and artists we're looking at were mostly born in the 1880s or 90s. One generation removed from slavery. Their parents had been slaves in many cases. The other way to look at generations is in a 20-year span, as children grow up and become something that their parents were not. Each generation comes of age and defines themselves against their predecessors. We see that as well in the Harlem Renaissance. Someone might say, My grandfather was an immigrant, but not me. Or, My grandfather was a slave. My father was a sharecropper. My life is something else. Don't confuse me with that. I'm new. With the Harlem Renaissance, the changes were vivid and dramatic. Here's a quick reminder of some key dates and milestones. America had hundreds of years of slavery, the atrocity that predated the nation, and cast a shadow over all the ideals of the founding fathers. The great contradiction at the heart of the American experiment, the agony of being a slave, the frustrations of all who opposed it, the twisted mentality that it took to be a slave owner or to be in favor of slavery, and the willful blindness of those who tried to pretend it didn't exist. Centuries of that generation after generation living within that immoral system. Then it finally ended in 1865. With all those lies, all that belief system, the need to believe something, all that oppression, which has an effect on the oppressors and the oppressed, all this humanity and every individual having thoughts and views and experiences and desires, it's not an easy thing to set aside with a single proclamation. And America didn't. The conditions for black Americans, especially in the South, following the Civil War and the ending of slavery, were horrible. This was an era of grinding poverty and racism. Lynchings were common. Lynchings as ugly a form of terrorism as there is, maybe even uglier. That police officer, that mayor, that courthouse, none of it will protect you. That's what lynching says. These institutions might work against you. Those men attending church on Sunday might be wearing sheets on Sunday night, standing in front of burning crosses, bodies dangling from trees awful, horrendous. There were Jim Crow laws, segregated swimming pools and schools and water fountains, and sharecropping, which was a rigged system. The former slaves and their children who were given land to work, given a portion of the, of the land, and then the proceeds had to go to the owner. The sharecroppers often fell into debt and became, in effect, a different kind of slave, someone tied to the land, someone who couldn't afford to leave it, but with no way to ever change the situation, no way to get out of debt, almost like a serf, very similar to serfdom. And then the North called. Was the North racist? I'm sure it was. Was it less racist than the South? Probably. Was it less resentful of the Civil War and the outcome? Of course. Was it more welcoming to black people? The economics, at least, would say that, yes, it was. The factories and industry began booming. They needed workers. They needed people to come and fill the jobs. Here's a few figures. I'm taking these figures along with a lot of other information from Cheryl Walls, 
enlightening book, The Harlem Renaissance. It's another brilliant short introduction from the Oxford University Press. Highly recommended. Okay, here are some figures that a Southerner might face in the late 19th century. Wages for a black worker on a Southern farm could be 75 cents a day. In the North, working in an unskilled position, the average wage was between 4 and $8 per day. Don't let the uninflated numbers, which sound like nothing to us, fool you. Think of the best job you've ever had. Now imagine, think of how much you made when you were working that best job you've ever had. Now imagine that someone walks in the door and offers you 10 times your salary. I'll pause while you do the math in your mind. You'd probably take it, right? 10 times your salary. Now imagine if your job was miserable and someone offered you 10 times your salary to do work that was that was equivalent. And your housing conditions will be better and the public schools for your kids will be better. You'd move for that, right? You'd leave everything behind and do what you could to go north. Hundreds of Thousands of black Southerners said they would, and they did. They moved north and filled the factory jobs that the north needed filled. All this was happening as the century turned from the 19th to the 20th century. Then the war hit, the Great War, and African Americans were needed there too. They served as soldiers, and they returned from Europe with a sense of pride, and understandably so. Pride and and indignance. We just serve the country. You can serve us in your diners. An understandable attitude. But let's just talk about the jobs. Think about the excitement they must have felt. What a joy to feel welcomed for your work. Doesn't always happen that way. I've had a lot of jobs, and most of them made me feel like a beggar. Like I should be grateful for the job and not the other way around. I felt it a bit with my first job where my boss was kind of a grifter and welcomed me the way grifters love their co-workers, their co-conspirators. I felt it a bit at Amazon, at least at first, when they were bringing in 50 people a week and had more work than they could handle and more money than they knew what to do with. And I worked at a non-profit where the people were so nice you couldn't help but feel valued. I'm not a monster. But most jobs have felt like this. Oh, you want to work? You're lucky we're paying you. Without us, you'd be on the street living like an animal. We resent how much you cost and how ungrateful you are. So we want more. Give us more. Evenings, weekends, we want those too. Don't we pay you enough? That's how billionaires talk, at least the ones I've met. Where were you when I tried to call you? Oh, your daughter was in the hospital? Do you want this job or don't you? Don't we pay you enough? That's the attitude. Is it better in Europe and Australia, or is it the same there, too? Oh, you're sick? Well, that's your problem. What a burden you are to us. That's the typical employer talking to an employee, in my experience. You know when I was welcomed? When I was traveling on a real expense account, not a government per diem, a real high-flying expense account. I was still resented by my employer, but I was treated like a king by airlines and restaurants and hotels. So, imagine you move from god-awful conditions in the South. You're just a generation or so removed from slavery. The conditions are stacked against you. And you move to the North, where they want you, they need you, they're willing to pay you, and there are more jobs than people. Actually, that reminds me of one other time when I was in demand, when I was teaching English in Taiwan. Everyone else went to Taipei, the capital. I went to the second biggest city, Kaohsiung, where everyone wanted to learn English from a native speaker. Schools had to show parents that they had native speakers on staff, and there weren't enough of us to go around. People stopped me on the street to urge me to come work for them. I was in a film. I recorded audiobooks. Me, the voice not made for radio, as several of you have noted in your iTunes reviews. Thank you for the feedback, as always. Once in Taiwan, I went to get a job, and they asked me to fill out an application that had a space for an essay about why I wanted to be a teacher. It had about 10 lines. Required me to think a little bit, fill out, fill out some sentences, and I just stood up and walked out. 
I didn't feel like writing the essay, and I didn't have to. There was a school next door and another one across the street that needed teachers too. I was in demand. My labor was valued. It was a very different feeling. I felt very different about work. I enjoyed it. I looked forward to it. The pressure was not on me to live up to impossible standards. The pressure was on my bosses to keep me happy. The work was probably not much different, but the attitude changed everything. So that's one big thing to remember about the migration, the great migration. There's the excitement of new opportunities for all those black Americans moving from the south to the north. The excitement of feeling wanted, of having a bit of control, of being paid well. Of course, there's another way to look at the migration. It's change. Warm weather to cold weather is just the start. Country life to city life is another change, for better or worse. Family and familiarity might be left behind. It's a move from the known to the unknown. Different people react in different ways to this, and the northerners, both black and white, might react differently too. You might find yourself meeting people excited to meet you, excited about the influx of new talent and energy. Or you might find yourself among people who resent your presence. Their world is changing almost as much as yours. And there's a a third way to look at the Great Migration. How did this affect the individual? Change lets one reinvent oneself. Cities can be anonymous in a way that small rural areas might not be. You can leave the South with one identity and show up in Harlem with a different one. Langston Hughes embodied this spirit. He was from Cleveland. His father was, had been fed up with the racism that he'd encountered and had relocated to Mexico. Langston visited him there. Then he returned, and on the train on the way home, he wrote his classic poem, The Negro Speaks of Rivers. Let's listen to that now. This is The Negro Speaks of Rivers, one of my earliest poems written in 1920, just after I came out of high school. The way this poem came to be written was that I was going to Mexico to visit my father, who lived in Mexico City, and on the train going across the Mississippi River, just outside St. Louis, I looked out the window and I saw this great muddy river flowing down toward the heart of the south, and I began to think about what this river meant to the Negro people, how, in a sense, our history was linked to this river, how in slavery time, my grandmother told me that to be sold down the Mississippi was one of the worst things that could happen to a Negro slave. And then uh, I remembered that I'd read about Abraham Lincoln going down the Mississippi as a young man, and he went on a raft to New Orleans, and he saw human beings bought and sold in the slave market there, and he was so horrified by this that he never forgot it. And many years later, of course, we know that it was Lincoln who signed the Emancipation Proclamation. And so, uh, as the train went on into the gathering dusk, because it had been about sunset when we crossed the river, I took my father's letter out of my pocket and began to write down on the back of his letter this poem, The Negro Speaks of Rivers. I've known rivers. I've known rivers ancient as the world and older than the flow of human blood in human veins. My soul has grown deep like the rivers. I bathed in the Euphrates when dawns were young. I built my hut near the Congo and it lulled me to sleep. I looked upon the Nile and raised the pyramids above it. I heard the singing of the Mississippi when Abe Lincoln went down to New Orleans, and I've seen its muddy bosom turn all golden in the sunset. I've known rivers, ancient, dusky rivers. My soul has grown deep like the rivers. Mm. He was 19 when he wrote that. 19, and he knew. He knew how to tap into the river, the great metaphor and theme of so many folk songs and folk tales and... Negro Spirituals, The River. That's a wonderful poem. Here's another great Hughes poem. I, too, listen to this one. Again, it's read by the poet. I, too, sing America. I am the darker brother. 
They send me to eat in the kitchen when company comes, but I laugh and eat well and grow strong. Tomorrow I'll be at the table when company comes. Nobody'll dare say to me, eat in the kitchen then. Besides, they'll see how beautiful we are and be ashamed. I too am America. Hmm. That was written in 1926. It has echoes of Walt Whitman, of course, the great American poet. It's often anthologized together, point and counterpoint. Whitman says, I sing the body electric, and I hear America singing. Whitman believed in a binding of all kinds of people together, all kinds of workers, implied white workers. And Hugh says, don't forget about me. Don't forget about us. We're here. We're Americans just as you are. We're in this mix. We'll be dining at this table, too. We're singing America just like you are because this is our country and our subject as well. We're born here and grow up here and live and love and learn here. And we have our take on it that's every bit as legitimate as yours. And the ending line, not just I sing America, but I too am America. You can't keep the blinders on and pretend that we're not here. That might sound angrier than I think the poem is. I don't think Hughes was writing with a kind of fury at Walt Whitman. It's a celebration of Whitman as well, a nod to him, a celebration and an assertion. For Hughes as a poet, as for all the Harlem Renaissance writers, the sources of inspiration were deep and wide. They could look to Europe for the high art, the refined style, the novels, in the tradition of Flaubert and Joyce and Proust. Or they could look to the poetry of Shakespeare and Shelley and Tennyson, the music of Mozart and Beethoven and Stravinsky. Or they could look to Africa, even if they had never been there as a kind of native land and origin story, a wellspring of music and landscape and culture, the cradle of civilization, possibly a place of some connection, some lines to draw, some dots to connect, a place to identify with or draw from or attribute aspects of one's own identity to, at least in part. They could look to the folk stories and songs of the black experience in the South, the spirituals, the suffering, the deeply embedded lore, they could look to the white poets, their contemporaries, living a few blocks away. They could and did look to all these places, all these sources, and they found what they could use and what they needed to reject, and they fashioned something new that rang spiritually true to their own experience. I'm getting ahead of myself, I meant to be talking about Harlem and how Hughes embodies its spirit. Hughes's father, the embittered man in Mexico, wanted Langston to pursue his studies in mining engineering. Hughes told him that he'd go to Columbia for university, but he had something else in mind than engineering. Already the call of Harlem, the magnetic power, was too strong. Later he wrote that, quote, more than Paris or the Shakespeare country or Berlin or the Alps, I wanted to see Harlem, the greatest Negro city in the world, end quote. Harlem was being written about by people in other countries, and in fact... In some ways, that's why I decided to do this episode. I was asked by a woman in Canada, a man in China, and another woman in India. All three, please do a show on the Harlem Renaissance. It's because of the spirit, the energy. Paris was important too, and Chicago and Greenwich Village, but Harlem was the cultural center, the center of the rising black culture and artistry, located in the north of Manhattan, America's cultural capital. The people filling the brownstones and townhouses and apartments were southern migrants, native New Yorkers, Caribbean immigrants, a small percentage of Africans, and people drawn from other cities, too. Drawn to Harlem, just like my listeners. Just like my listeners who wrote in requesting the show from all over the world. Drawn to Harlem because Harlem was where it was at. <laughs>
Oh, good. We can't do all the music justice. We can't do all the writers justice either. Let's just focus on some major themes and four writers in particular. Hughes, we've already discussed. He's often called the greatest poet of the Harlem Renaissance writers, and he probably is. He's certainly one of the greatest poets America has ever produced with an indispensable body of work that stands with Whitman and Dickinson and Frost and Bishop. You can add a few others. The short list, though, Hughes belongs. And another of the four that I actually want to save because I'm planning to do an entire episode on him, Gene Toomer. Gene Toomer never really wanted to be associated with the Harlem crowd anyway. He lived in Greenwich Village, but he wrote about similar themes in one of his books. Kane was absolutely central to the rise of black literature at this time. It's a wonderful book. As I was researching this episode, I fell into a deep Gene Toomer rabbit hole and decided that his story needs its own episode. Which is not to say that Langston Hughes doesn't. He deserves one too, or so did the next two on my list, Nella Larson and Zora Neale Hurston. All three, all four will go on the list of shows that I plan to do. But let's dip into a little bit here so you can get a sense of who those two authors were. Nella Larson was born in 1891 in Chicago, the daughter of an Afro-Caribbean immigrant from the Danish West Indies and a Danish mother, white mother. Her father was probably mixed race. Her mother was white. Her mother remarried a white man and had another daughter. Nella grew up without a connection to the black world in the way that, say, Langston Hughes did. As critic Daryl Pinckney said, she had no entree into the world of the blues or of the black church. At the same time, she wasn't as white as her mother or her sister. Her stepfather resented her presence. All these themes and these characters will come to play in her novels, especially her novel Passing, which is one of the outstanding modern wor- modernist works produced in America. Larson didn't start out as an author. She had a full-blown career as a nurse, very successful. Her nursing school was at an institution that had been founded as a nursing home to serve blacks, but it developed into a hospital as well, and then it was relocated from Manhattan to the South Bronx, and it ended up where the hospital patients were primarily white, the nursing home patients were primarily black, the doctors were male and white, and the nurses and nursing students were female and black. As Pinckney wrote, quote, No matter what situation Larson found herself in, racial irony of one kind or another invariably wrapped itself around her. End quote. That was when she was 23. She hadn't written a novel yet, but we can guess that she was observing, reflecting, getting ready, just as she had no doubt drawn from her childhood with her her own unusual circumstances, a white stepfather who resented her, resented the way that she reminded him, served as evidence, of the relationship with the black man that his new wife had once had. She went to Alabama to work and eventually became head nurse at the Tuskegee Institute. Then she returned to New York, kept rising through the ranks as a nurse, and married a prominent African-American physicist. Together, they moved to Harlem. She began volunteering at the public library, and eventually she became a librarian instead of a nurse excited by the possibilities of the rising black consciousness and exhibits of things like, quote, Negro art, end quote, that the library was putting forth in those years. Finally, she took a leave of absence and started writing novels and immediately became a critical success, first with her book Quicksand and then her masterpiece, Passing. Passing concept referring to a light-skinned black living in white society without identifying as black is a great theme in the literature of the Harlem Renaissance, and it's easy to see why. It's so rich and so perfect for the era. All those people leaving the South, coming to Harlem, or traveling abroad with the military, or showing up in the city with very little background or other identifiers, living in a world where no one knows you, it's a time to forge identities to create yourself anew if you want to. Everyone was sampling that drink, not to mention thinking about the biggest identifiers of all, gender and race, sexuality. Hearing the stories of people passing shows the divisions within a black world, divisions within the white world, how they treat blacks, and of course, it puts at the forefront the divide between the black and white worlds. 
The concept of passing exposes race as a social construct, a matter of perception. It's not the genes. It's not a biological difference. It's not African blood or anything like that. It's what you've chosen to be and what the rest of society has chosen to see you as. That's the only difference. But it's not a costless choice to pass. Taps into all those human emotions like guilt, nostalgia, conflicted ambition, fear of exposure, anger, concealment to the point of self-deception, and full-blown identity crises. Passing, Larson's novel, shows all of this. Two childhood friends are both of mixed race. They get together after years have gone by. One of the friends, Claire, has grown up with her white aunts. She started to pass, and she's married a white man who is a racist. The other friend, Irene, lives in Harlem and has identified as black. The novel begins as the two meet and are fascinated with one another's lifestyle. And I won't spoil the ending, the plot, for people other than to say that there is some tragedy to it, some ambiguity, and it ends up putting race, class, and gender under the microscope. Passing is a wonderful book. It's highly recommended. Like Larson, the author Zora Neale Hurston was also born in 1891, and she also had a distinguished academic background. Her field was anthropology, and she studied or worked with luminaries like Franz Boas, Ruth Benedict, and Margaret Mead. Before that, she'd grown up in the South, and in particular in the all-black town of Eatonville, Florida, where she would eventually set many of her works. They served as the backdrop for her fiction. Her father as the was the town's mayor and the preacher of its largest church, as her grandfather had been. An all-black town in the Jim Crow South had an unusual position. On the one hand, it was a bit sheltered from the reality of what was going on in the rest of the territory. On the other hand, it was free from a lot of the day-to-day indignities and oppression that would come up with growing up in other parts of the South. Once again, it seems like the perfect environment for someone who is going to one day observe and describe the subtle differences in culture. Zora Neale Hurston did that in her fiction, but the same could also be said for anthropology, perfect place for an anthropologist to grow up. Even after she had relocated to New York, Hurston took several trips to the South to hear and record folklore and other local practices like the practice of white men in power taking black women as sexual concubines, which was still in practice in the 1920s and 30s. And Hurston drew the the parallel between that, drew the lines between that practice and slavery. She traveled to Jamaica and Haiti and Honduras, working on several different anthropological studies, very influential. Her fiction drew on these experiences and revelations, insights as well. Several of her short stories are highly regarded. She wrote some plays and some musical reviews. One was a collaboration with Langston Hughes. None of them were hugely successful in their day. They're not often performed now. Her greatest success, her greatest uh, non-fictional success, was the novel that's most read today, Their Eyes Were Watching God. Published in 1937, Their Eyes Were Watching God is the story of Janie Crawford, an African-American woman in her early 40s, who recounts the story of her life to her best friend. The narrative is organized in three major sections that correspond to the three marriages that she's had. The book is compelling. Hurston is a gifted storyteller, a brilliant writer, and it generates fascinating themes of sexual awakening, female relationships, marriage, love, work natural disaster, and human tragedy. Although it's fairly widely praised today, at the time of publication, not everyone admired the book. Some Harlem Renaissance writers criticized it. And that leads me to our next main order of business, the legacy of the Harlem Renaissance. Movements have their own momentum. They have their causes, their conflicts, and their critics. They inspire. They achieve. They provoke. The Harlem Renaissance is no different. We can view it with an open mind and an open heart and with gratitude and admiration for what the individuals accomplished and maybe look with some wonder at the conditions that made it possible. 
but it's not easy to define with precision. And we should note that it's not universally admired either. Literature and literary movements never are. I spoke about a generation defining itself and the excitement of the conditions that led to this particular generation doing so. It would seem likely that some within that generation struggled with what others were doing, with decisions that they were making and positions they were taking, and it seems all but inevitable that future generations would criticize it as well. Artists feel the anxiety and the need to go their own way. Listen to this sonnet by Helene M. Johnson. Listen especially for the contradictions. That's what great art does, right? Expresses the ambiguity of the world, expresses what's difficult rather than merely describes what's easy. Here's a, This sonnet is one that catches the contradictions in the Harlem themes and the Harlem Renaissance. It's called Sonnet to a Negro in Harlem. You are disdainful and magnificent, your perfect body and your pompous gait your dark eyes flashing solemnly with hate. Small wonder that you are incompetent to imitate those whom you so despise. Your shoulders towering high above the throng, your head thrown back in rich, barbaric song. Palm trees and mangoes stretched before your eyes. Let others toil and sweat for labor's sake and wring from grasping hands their need of gold. Why urge ahead your supercilious feet? Scorn will efface each footprint that you make. I love your laughter, arrogant and bold. You are too splendid for this city street. Dark eyes flashing solemnly with hate. Harlem is about liberation and excitement. Renaissance literally means rebirth. But there's also sorrow and sadness and guilt and frustration. There's jazz and the blues. The poet loves the bold and arrogant laughter, but that's a real choice. It's not an easy choice, nor is it easy to imitate those whom the subject despises. Do you succeed at the white man's game? Do you play a different game? If so, what? What does it do to you to make another choice? What do we admire about the paths taken? What do we condemn about the society that forces people into these paths? Those were real questions for people in the Harlem Renaissance. And there were, with all of the excitement and the energy and the artistic success, there was a downside. Some saw it as a downside, as the white onlookers, the enthusiasts from further south in Manhattan used to come up and fill the cotton club, bring their money, bring their attitude. Sometimes would they would come up, In groups, people would drive them around to observe something anthropological about that, too, isn't there? The gaze of the anthropologist can be ugly. You could see why people would resist it and say, why are you taking their money? Why are you letting them publish your work? Why are you letting them absorb this? Why are we on display for people like this? All of these were difficult questions people were wrestling with. Richard Wright, the author who's coming a little bit later, not that much later. He was writing in the 30s. He admired Hurston, but he didn't think much of her most famous novel. Here's his quote. Quote, Miss Hurston seems to have no desire whatsoever to move in the direction of serious fiction. She can write, but her prose is cloaked in that facile sensuality that has dogged Negro expression since the days of Phyllis Wheatley. Her characters eat and laugh and cry and work and kill. They swing like a pendulum, eternally in that safe and narrow orbit in which America likes to see the Negro live, between laughter and tears. End quote. Ralph Ellison, the author of The Invisible Man, who wanted something very different for African-American novelists and novel readers, said Hurston's book contained, quote, a blight of calculated burlesque. End quote. She's been rediscovered since then, admired by Daryl Pinckney and Alice Walker and Henry Louis Gates. She and Nella Larson and Langston Hughes are on many college syllabi and must-read lists. Their works are enjoyed by people around the world. Duke Ellington is second to none, and Louis Armstrong, who worked mostly out of Chicago but is often 
categorized with the Harlem Renaissance uh, musicians. Those two are in a similar pantheonic position. The rest of the Harlem Renaissance is contested. Those white tourists, tourists in quotes, who went up to the Cotton Club or drove around Harlem, thrilled by the music and lights and excitement, they've left a bit of a taste in some mouths. Sure, they brought money. But with the taking of the money, was there any loss of integrity? Was the turn to Africa that many Harlem Renaissance writers made, was that a sophisticated turn or did it foster some of the same unfortunate stereotypes? What about the use of folklore and folktales and dialect, fiction written in dialect? Did it measure up to European art or did it look too much to Europe as the standard? These questions are unanswerable and probably unfair, but they're live ones, still debated, much debated at the time. Where does that leave us? We today, we in America are in a period now with a leader who campaigned on a slogan of making America great again. How far back does that again go? To the 1950s and the era of white bread conformity? To the Jim Crow South, is that what's meant? Is that the great America we're looking for? When was this period of great America? Sometime before political correctness? To ignore the racial component of the campaign, Make America Great Again, and, and its supporters, racism expressed by the supporters, is to deny the obvious. It's a shame that we're tilting toward anti-immigrant policies and anti-multicultural worldviews. America is great, was great, is great, is greater because we've had a black president, because we have painters of all colors and styles and talents and musicians and composers and poets and writers and people, workers, professionals, working class, hard-working people who go home to their families, live in their houses, grow up, want the best for their kids. For all its flaws, the spirit of the Harlem Renaissance is a wonderful part of America's history. Making America great again is an ugly stretch, a cancer. Maybe we'll see a backlash. Maybe there will be a renewal. Maybe that's the silver lining. The disease doesn't kill the patient. We could use a rebirth, and the optimist in me thinks we'll have one eventually. We'll get a rebirth. I just wish there wasn't so much death on the way first. Oh boy, another happy ending from your old friend Jack. (laughs) That took a turn. Sort of a happy ending, kind of. I do my best. I know people don't like it when I talk about politics. Send your hate mail to jackwilsonauthor at gmail.com. I'll take it like I take all the rest of it. Or you could tweet it at literaturesc, and our old friend Mike Palindrome will handle it. <laughs> thanks for joining me on this week's episode, and my thanks to all the people who recommended the topic. I hope I gave you at least some of what you wanted me to, to uh, deliver. You can contact me at jackwilsonauthor at gmail.com, J-A-C-K-E, wilsonauthor at gmail.com. We're still sending out the literary postcards. Write a review or click the five stars or do something else to help us get the word out, and we'll send you a few words as a thank you and a very cool literary photo for you to frame or use as a bookmark and all of our undying gratitude. Let's end with uh, one of the songs from Shuffle Along, the 1921 musical that many people point to as the start of the Harlem Renaissance. Langston Hughes did. That was where he pinpointed it. This is I'm Just Wild About Harry. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Just one fellow for me in this world Harry's his name, that's what I claim For every fellow there must be a girl I found my mate by kindness of fate 
Yes, I'm just wild about Harry. Harry's wild about me. The heavenly blisses of his kisses fill me with ecstasy. He's sweet just like chocolate candy and just like honey from the bee. Oh, I'm just wild about Harry and he's just wild about can I do without he's just wild about me. Talking about me, baby. I'm just wild about Harry. Oh, God. Harry's wild about me. Tell the world. All the heavenly blisses of his kisses fill me with ecstasy. Be careful, honey. He's sweet, just like <laughs> chocolate candy. <laughs> That's me. Just like honey from the bee. Oh, baby. Oh, I'm just wild about Harry. And guess what? Yeah, and he's just right. wild about. Can I do right. about? He's just wild uh, about 